0: Hello everyone and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I satisfy my curiosity about anything I want really and I pass it along to you. Uh, I'm Melissa
1: and I'm Everett.
0: So, I'll start with apologies for the late episode we missed last week with all the hectic school-starting relatives visiting uh, end-of-summer chaos. Um, Shenanigans. Hopefully, we'll be back on track starting today with the every 2 weeks thing. Yes. Uh, apologies. Um, this week, I want to talk about just kind of all sorts of cool random aspects of the weather. Um, Uh, There's a lot of not cool stuff about the weather, Oh, in my opinion. Like not cool stuff, like warm things. Low pressure. Oh, God. (sighs) (laughs) groan. Had to happen. But good one. Um, I personally just find some of it a little boring. You know, the low pressure zone and the high pressure zone and the subduction and the convection and the conduction and the science words. Sure. I like science and I was a little bored. So I picked the cool stuff. So it may seem slightly disjointed, but that's just because I only picked the cool stuff. You're okay. welcome, again, <laughs> for that. <laughs> um, I do think that uh, you might also be bored by some of the stuff I think is cool. We're just going to yeah. have to listen to it. find out.
1: We'll find out. So how about you teach me something?
0: Okay, I want to start off this week with this fun fact that I learned that doesn't have much to do with the rest of the episode, except for that it's about weather.
1: Okay. Okay. Um,
0: I learned that there's a field of science called paleotempestology. Mm. And um, it's a fun fact just because of how cool that name is.
1: Yes. It has lots of various components to it. Paleotempestology.
0: Yeah. Super cool. So it's the study of past tropical cyclone activity. Of course. Um, using both physical evidence and historical document um, like documentation and records. Yeah. Um, because, you know, weather is a cyclical pattern and we don't have necessarily the most well-documented records of storm activity before about 300 years ago. So sure. it's, a, it's a pretty new field. So some scientists decided that if we could discern storm patterns going back, you know, like as far as we can, um, we could have a better idea of what's happening now and the yeah. future. Just you gain know, insights through parallel. Um, all that stuff. So like I said, it's fairly new. It's kind of not 100% agreed on that it should be a field, but... It is for now, sure. <laughs> um, so they can use a few things. They um, they look for sediment deposit deposits from um, past storms, and apparently you can tell which deposits are left by cyclones due to some really confusing stuff that boils down to the density and composition of cyclone sediment is just different. Okay. Um, and then they can date things. they use um, you know, radio dating. Not carbon dating, things like with a shorter lifespan.
1: <laughs> yeah, carbon um, we're talking, dating is We're talking
0: for... things, we're dating a few thousand years, uh, up to 10,000 years, not, you know, millions and right. millions here. Yeah. So makes sense. Um, they can also look at oxygen isotope ratios and how they vary. Because if it's like, you know, some sediment that has a very weird ratio, then it was carried by somewhere else. Anyways, they look at those okay. things. Um And they look in caves, at certain um, cave deposits called speleothems.
1: Ooh.
0: Ooh. And um, beach ridges kicked up by storm waves. So they look at all those things. And they do also look at writings of ancient peoples and try to see if any of that, like what they wrote about happening, could correlate with the physical evidence and yada, yada, yada. Um, so they could tell scientists like how often cyclones occurred, and sometimes actually even like the intensity of a cyclone. Very cool. Um, because the stronger events, you know, typically actually are the most easily recognizable ones. Doesn't seem
1: too surprising, though. right? And
0: then they compare that also, though, to if they have a known event that lifts this much sediment, they can compare it to another event and say it must have been less strong than this known record. Anyways, they can sure. do a pretty good job. So they have a database now of tropical cyclones going back to about 6,000 BCE for the western, um, like, North Atlantic region. Okay. And in the Gulf of Mexico, they have records going back about 5,000 years. That's pretty good. Um, Yeah. No, but in general, they don't go f- further back than five to 6,000 years ago in the tropical cyclone kind of activity because of the Holocene sea level rise kind of leveled things off and the deposits were kind of...
1: Lost at um, that point, or distributed, or... Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Okay.
0: Um. So, who knows what that could do in the future, or it could just not be a science anymore, because, like I said, it's not entirely agreed upon. Is a little controversial. Sure. But I thought that was cool, just because that word is cool. Paleo Mm-hmm. Whew. So, weather, obviously, is important to us. Uh, oh, I guess. Obviously, it's important now, and you can imagine how it was even more important in the past. Yep. Um. So, I started by looking at some storm gods, weather gods, because that seems like a logical starting point. Wow. Um, you probably already know that the Greek and Roman storm god was Zeus or Jupiter. Yeah. Um, and the Norse, Thor. Yep. Uh, the Hittite storm and weather god is Teshub. And by the way, there is really no differentiation in ancient cultures. There is like a weather god. But it's mostly just a a lightning god or a storm god, and there is no separate, like, other types of weather. It's just this one guy that makes lightning, or it was such a fanciful, it was such a striking, huh? I didn't mean to say that. Flashy kind of weather. (laughs) No, I didn't mean to, I promise. It was just so impactful relative to the other stuff that happened that I think that that was a main focus.
1: Well, and it led to big noises. (laughs)
0: Yes. Um, the gods bowling or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the Babylonians had Adad, the storm god, and Marduk. Which dad? That's a, just, oh my god, you're just full of him today. <laughs> I don't know if you say that, Adad, that you'd probably still make that joke. Probably. It's A-D-A-D. If anyone okay. knows how to pronounce it better, or maybe that's how you pronounce it, never everyone's going to make fun of your culture anyways. All those ancient Babylonians should be so offended right now.
1: Or just tell me whose dad it was.
0: That's all. <laughs> it's fine. The Canaanites, um, Baal. I think everyone's probably heard of Baal, yeah. to be honest. Uh, Egyptians had Horus, the god of sun, storms, and wars, and set the storm god.
1: Oh, there seems I, to be some overlap there.
0: There does. I mean, like that's never happened in any other mythology. Oh, no,
1: never. <laughs> there's, no. Like
0: five million, there's like five million minor wind deities I didn't mention for the Greeks, and I'm sure all these other cultures, because I don't know them well enough. Um, the Hindus have Indra, who is their king of their gods, and carried a lightning bolt and rode a white elephant while commanding the weather. So he sounds pretty badass. Uh, Japanese, they had Susanu, god of storms and the sea.
1: I only know that one from. I can't the remember. Really
0: the, hilarious the, book, Zeus Grant's Stupid Wishes. Yeah, I think that's the one. Yeah, yeah, which we yeah. have lost somewhere in our house, but is really funny, and I want to find it. Mm-hmm. It's a really great mythology book. If anyone is looking for it, um, a funny and
1: brought down to layman's. Current Books contemporary full of terms, swear words. Yeah,
0: <laughs> don't yeah. read it to children. Um, so you know, I I was learning these different storm and weather gods that have existed through history, and I kind of realized that these are mostly prime, like primary important deities, king of the gods type of deities. Like all of them, there's only a few on here that aren't the most important, yeah, and not, they not are tertiary very important cousins or none of them, right?
1: You know, weird ants or something.
0: Um. So you know it kind of made me think, and this is just my opinion, that that really speaks to how important and confusing weather has been for humanity in the past. Like, everyone knows how important it was, and they have to respect it because they don't do anything wrong for the lightning to come get them. But, yeah, that you know, it's just so vital, you know? Too hot or too cold was going to kill you. Too dry is going to kill you. Flooding is going to kill you. Yeah. storms are going to kill you and currents and winds and electricity these are all concepts that we have not understood until very recently and they must have been frightening and magical and uh, like yeah just intimidating we needed to grow food to survive and, and whether gods are just so universally important in that right um, so in fact even before the dawn of agriculture there is evidence of how primitive humans dealt with the meteorology, you could say. Uh, Archaeologists found man-made lunar calendars dating back, you know, many thousands of years to the Ice Age, where they've seen Ice Age hunters carved uh, notches and they, like, bored holes into sticks or, like, tusks from mammoths or bones, um, like from caribou, to record days between each phase of the moon. Okay. Yeah, and then, obviously, you know that most cultures um had some kind of marker for not the time necessarily but seasons or right. things like that like Stonehenge like a seasonal clock mm-hmm. um so Stonehenge probably was a seasonal clock um it does align with the winter and summer solstices you it does. may or may not know anything about Stonehenge listening to this in the UK I would say there's a great number of dis- dissenting opinions, though they're minor, um, about what Stonehenge was. I don't think that anyone is super confident no. in their assessment. But that's likely what it was. Yeah. Um, at Machu Picchu, down in Peru, the uh, Incas set up, I'm going to say this terribly, I'm sure, Intihuatana. <laughs> uh, the Intihuatana is Hitching Post of the Sun. Which is a stone that indicates the precise date of the winter solstice. Mm-hmm. And then they have the Temple of the Sun, also at Machu Picchu, which has this specific window that is perfectly exactly aligned with the sunrise on the day of the summer solstice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, you know that already?
1: No, but it's very akin to, uh, I'm not going to remember what the day is, but...
0: Indiana Jones. Sorry, as far as oh, wow. Indiana that Jones thing. Yeah. the sun precisely at this time will shine through the crack on the window and you will know this is the summer solstice.
1: Yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson had uh, calculated the. I think it's the morning when in New York, I don't even remember what street it is, but there's like the morning that the sun will come up and have that same effect. Hmm. Um, and it has become so popular that on that morning you can't drive on the street because of too many pedestrians crowding in. To
0: God, Neil deGrasse the whole Tyson, thing. what'd you do? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I don't live there. Um, the Egyptians. They noticed the Nile flooded at the same time every year. They noticed the appearance of Ceres, the star Ceres, at the same time every year. Mm-hmm. And they charted this and they developed a calendar. Now, this I did not know. So they used these things to develop a calendar that had fifty or 365.25 days.
1: Yeah. So similar to, you know, the number of days we have now in our calendar.
0: But isn't that crazy? That is crazy. This is like before 3000 BCE. That they were able to do this. And then, of course, we threw that all... (laughs) Thrown that knowledge out the window. I mean, we got Uh, back to it. But, like, that's so cool to me. That they were able to be that precise. They don't have a telescope. They don't have... They don't have anything. So cool. So... But, you know, that being said, weather was still very much blamed on the gods. Attributed to the gods all over the ancient world. Sure. Um... You know, but like I said, we're starting to look into the mechanics and physical science behind weather as early as this. This is about 3000 BCE where we're talking about the Egyptian calendar. And as well in about 3000 BCE, we have the Apinashads. Apanishads? I'm gonna say Apanishads, which are important um, texts in the Hindu religion. Cool. So, uh, and other um, Hindu texts smaller writings that trace meteorology in India back to 3000 BCE or even earlier and they discuss how clouds form how the rain forms and falls the pattern of seasons caused by the movement of earth around the sun mm. all that's written in there um, so it's shocking to me that we somehow didn't know it <laughs> for so many years after that the ancient, I mean, it's not shocking. They're yeah. on the east. the The Greeks are the West, and the Indians in the East, and no one paid attention to anything they did, right? So yeah. the ancient Greeks tried to analyze weather as a science too. They were unfortunately hampered by a few of their very core beliefs. That whole four elements thing, everything being made the of humors? earth. No, everything being oh, made the, of yeah. earth, air, wind, and fire. That yeah. that earlier part of it, yeah. And the belief that the sun orbited around the earth.
1: Yeah, that's kind of messed them up
0: because you can't really explain seasons without the earth moving, as the Hindu texts already had written thousands of years before this, and everyone clearly ignored or didn't know about or discounted. Yeah. I don't know. Um, see, the number of times, like, some culture is discovered in something in science, and then it goes like hundreds of years, thousands of years. We're like, hey, we figured this thing out that we already knew thousands of years ago. Darn it. Well,
1: collectively as a species, some I of us knew. Know. but it's just, yeah. it's
0: almost like painful that we had to struggle this hard for some things that.
1: It's also different oh. nowadays when our perspective is quite global and communication is global.
0: You mean they didn't have the internet in 3000 BCE? Yeah,
1: and it, and it just changes the.
0: Well, that was their fault then. Changes they should have found a better way to spread their information
1: instead of just, you know, across longitudes.
0: <laughs> so the Greeks. Digging a few things right, Thales of Miletus started recording weather patterns and their effects on olive growth. Mm. Uh, and around 580 BCE, he issued his first like seasonal crop forecast based on all that information. And then there was Aristotle, always always getting something right. Yeah. Published uh, Meteorologica around 350 BCE. So he kind of amassed all of the current earth science knowledge of his time. And one of the sections was like weather and climate. Um, So in the Greek world, anything that fell from the sky was called a meteor. Okay. That word in Greek means high in the sky. Sure. Rain was a meteor. Clouds were meteors. Birds. Space rock. (laughs) You know, those birds just falling out of the sky.
1: Dead birds, I guess.
0: Plague from God or something. I don't know. I guess frogs Um, in that one case. I guess if they're high enough in the sky, they would be meteors, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And therefore, that's where we get the word meteorology from Aristotle's titling of this book about things that fall from high in the sky. Okay. Voila. Uh, Aristotle's pupil, Theophrastus. Which just reminds me of Paracelsus, Theophrastus Bombastus. Anyways, we'll, we'll talk about him again later. Um, he wrote a text on ways to use nature to predict the weather, um, and he was the first written evidence we have of someone talking about sunspots. Okay. And then hardly anything was learned at all for like so long, for so long, at least in the Western world. Because I have discovered, which was not in the book I read. I independently discovered this. They just skipped over all of this. That in the Indian area, in the Arab world, yeah. for the first thousand years, BC... Well, um, what's the other one? CE. Mm-hmm. Current C-E. Era, yeah. um, Common era. Common era? Yes. Really? Yes. Oh. <laughs> um, they, they were doing things. They were learning things. They sure. were making progress. Um, but... The West was super hampered by this whole, the Earth is the center of the world. We don't move. Everything moves around us. Because that explained nothing. Because it wasn't true. Um, explained why it didn't feel flat, like they were nothing. Like all of yeah. these, all of these, I'm going to say stupid. They lived a long time ago. All these unfounded, um, rigidly held beliefs yeah. really hampered us until, let's say Copernicus... <laughs> So for the first 1,500 years of that uh, this millennia, we did nothing and learned nothing about this. Copernicus comes, comes along in 1543 to convince everyone, um, well, I guess everyone in the West at least, that the Earth was not the center of the universe, in fact. And it actually orbits the sun, which allows us to finally explain seasons 4,500 years after the Upanishads in India had already done so uh <laughs> we went about 1900 I mean, years without any major advances. better
1: late than never i guess
0: um yeah that, i feel like if we hadn't got weather figured out by now we also wouldn't have the internet and podcasting and all recording and just everything figured out sure um copernicus also discovered the earth rotated on its axis once per day he discovered well that's how we defined it. But anyways, uh, he discovered that, you know, the Earth orbited the sun in 365 days. He discovered all these, you know, kind of real basic things that helped us build a foundation. Um, then comes Da Vinci. He invented the hygrometer to measure water vapor content in the air. Cool. Um, the anemometer to measure wind speeds. Sure. And, and then Galileo comes along in 1593 to invent the thermoscope which is like a long neck glass bottle, like think about a wine bottle maybe with a bit of a longer neck, um, upside down in water, like in a bucket of water. And when the bottle heats up, then the air would expand inside, yeah. the water level moves downwards, um, vice versa. When the bottle cools down, the air contracts, water goes up. Um, so it was like a thermometer, but only not useful because there was no sort of degree system or or relative measurement.
1: Yeah, but that's so also you could use the... the same
0: bottle to figure out if something was hotter than something else, but not yeah. to to measure.
1: I'm pretty sure it's also the same exact uh, principles behind. You know those thermometers, which are like the glass tubes that have water in them, and then they have the glass bubbles inside. They have various. I'm pretty sure pressures of air in them, and as the water heats up from ambient temperature, the bubbles sink mm. or float to I give think, you a temperature. I
0: think I know what kind of throne you're talking about. Like, they're different colors, at least little bubbles inside. Okay, I think I know what you're talking about. But I'm pretty sure it's the
1: glass that's different colors, and it's just different pressures of air inside.
0: Okay, fair enough. But that's all measured out, and therefore useful.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Mm -hmm.
0: So, this is what inspired thermometers, and it's a good step in the right direction, but it was not in itself really useful yet. Okay. Um, Speaking of thermometers, I think it's a good time. I'm just going to, like, time travel forward and explain why we have our three different temperature scales. So Daniel Gabriel Fahrenheit is a German instrument maker, was. He -hmm. came up with his scale in 1714.
1: And we should ignore it.
0: And he based his, well, he based his system on the difference between the freezing point of water and his own body temperature. Um, We should ignore it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, what else is he going (laughs) to, they don't know things. I'm not going to, I'm not going to knock him for this in 1714. Good job. Yeah. But it's just an advancement that we should have built upon as we did. And then, you know. And then weed it out Um, instead of keeping in the imperial system. (laughs) No one kept the imperial system, really. I can think of. Three. I'm just kidding. That's an old joke. I think Myanmar already migrated.
1: (laughs) Did they? So two.
0: Maybe Libya and America. And and
1: one of the two is pretty half and half.
0: Libya? No, Britain. Liberia. Or oh, it's Britain Libya. entirely metric now. Britain has so many measurement systems, but yeah. they officially don't use Imperial.
1: Okay, now. I didn't realize that. I they just they have about a million a different.
0: I don't know. It's so confusing. But no, officially, it was only the US, Myanmar, and Libya. But I think Myanmar was migrating. And Libya is a country, the only country founded by freed slaves from America. So America and America Jr. Uh, anyways, okay. moving on from insulting the uh, Fahrenheit scale, um, in 1742, Anders Celsius of Sweden invents a scale he called centesimal, mm. because of the 100 this is going. 100 degree difference between the key points, which is the boiling and freezing temperatures of water. Oh,
1: perfect, so majestic.
0: You do know the common argument from Fahrenheit proponents is that it describes better the actual living conditions of a human being because no one can live in 100 Celsius, but in Fahrenheit, you know that zero is real cold and 100 is real hot, but you can live through both of them. So it's more relevant.
1: I got it, but I don't agree.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So on Anders Celsius's centesimal scale, 100 Celsius centesimal was freezing and zero was boiling. Oh. Um, after he died two years later, they just flipped his scale around and called it centigrade. Perfect. In uh, 1948, they voted to name some science society voted to name it Celsius in honor of sure. honor Celsius. Um, but there's one more.
1: There is.
0: And you seem excited about it.
1: <laughs> it's about 273.13 degrees Celsius oh. below Celsius. God,
0: I'm so disappointed in you. Even I remembered this. It was 0.15. 273.15. Oh,
1: God. So bad at this. <laughs> <laughs> that would
0: make such a difference in some calculations. Actually, it, it would. Um, yeah. In 1848, William Thompson, later given the title Lord Kelvin,
1: uh, writes about.
0: What? I was like, <laughs> why is I it thought, called Kelvin? No,
1: I thought his name was Kelvin, and I'm like, that's I guess not the right guy. eventually it was. <laughs> but I see how this goes. Okay. Wrote about the
0: need for a scale with an infinite cold at the scale's null point. Yeah um which used degrees celsius for its unit increments. Yep. Um so the infinite cold is al- absolute zero and he mm-hmm. calculated that's equivalent to -273 degrees celsius using those thermometers of
1: 18- 18.15 as you pointed out.
0: No, that's that's you interrupted my story. <laughs> <laughs> you missed the part where I just said using the thermometers in 1848 time
1: Oh, that's as close that as he
0: could get in 1848 okay. to just his discovery of infinite cold. Okay. So yes, we do end up getting to the point where it is minus 273.15 degrees Celsius. Got it. Uh, not that, Kelvin is the temperature unit that you use internationally in science for everybody yep. you know, wondering where this comes into play in real life.
1: In chemistry, uh, and you're doing calculations in like physchem, for example. You never use Celsius. You always use Kelvin's because it's the it's... same
0: in literally every science. You're not special. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's the SI unit for temperature. Yeah, that's so great. yeah, we use Kelvin's in biology too. Good. And you physics, should. obviously. Yeah, in yeah, physics, yeah. <laughs> so let's reverse back back in time again to Galileo. We were talking about Galileo, and then I went forward in time. Remember that part? Mm-hmm. So we're gonna go back in time again. Okay. Um, to talk about one of Galileo's students, Evangelista Torricelli. Who is not a woman, by the way? I got kind of excited that Evangelista was a. Wo- it's not a woman. Oh, okay. Why to be a woman? Um, he invented the mercury barometer in 1644. Good for him. So now we can measure air pressure. We have humidity, wind speed, air pressure, some relative levels of temperature now, and a rudimentary understanding of how the Earth and the Sun move. So pretty much from then, all right, discoveries left right and center. Everything's kind of. I'm going to just fast forward now to present day because that's the overview of every important thing we needed to figure out the weather.
1: We had all the ingredients. We're just baking cakes now.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so as you can imagine, weather has had a great impact on war. Yeah. Um, pivotal battles during every major war would obviously have been influenced by things like rain, wind, fog, temperature, frost, wind, like just everything, Riding. right? Uh, blinding sun in your eyes Mm -hmm. just when someone tries to shoot you i don't know so let's talk about d-day just as an example here okay the allies took almost two years to plan the d-day invasion they picked landing spots on five beaches along the normandy coast and they constructed these artificial harbors to land at at each of these spots and they really needed to pick a specific date but it was real tough. They needed a day where the low tide coincided with the breaking dawn, which gives them the most area of beach. And then they needed a full moon that was just rising to support the airborne part of the mission. They needed a minimum three mile vi- visibility for the naval gunners. They needed the wind speed to be under 12 miles an hour onshore and under 18 offshore. They also needed no more than 60% of the sky to be covered by clouds, and the cloud cover could be no lower than 3,000 feet. So they had so many different weather conditions they needed to um, coalesce to pull this off, and only a few days per month were going to work. Right. Um, so there are three days in June that they had to pick from. They picked June 5th for the invasion. They loaded everything on the boats. They loaded everyone the in the boats on the 4th and had them all ready to go. And then a big storm rolled in over England. Uh, General Eisenhower, who you've probably heard of, decided Ooh. to <laughs> decided to delay the invasion. So that night, everything's still loaded. The guys are just, I don't know, sleeping in the boats waiting for waiting for go time. And Eisenhower's meteorological advisor, which of course is a thing I just never thought about before. Sure. Uh, told him, okay, there might be a break in the storm the next night, the night of June 6th. And... You know, got a little bit of a trip to get there. We kind of just got to say yay or nay and hope it works out. And and as you can imagine, this was a pretty big deal. Yeah. So is it really a throw caution to the wind scenario? Um, Eisenhower decided, yes, it was. And he famously, I did not know that this is the famous quote that launched the D-Day invasions. His, his advisor told him all of this. Eisenhower thought for a minute and said... Okay, we'll go. <laughs> and that is the quote that will go down in history, is launching D-Day. Okay. Okay, we'll, we'll go. go. <laughs> so off they went. They sailed through high winds and rains. They really hoped the weather would break by the time they got there, but they had no idea. And um, ended up okay. As you know, um, but the like some of the landings were slightly off course due to the wind, the weather didn't hurt the end result of the invasion, but they did sustain a lot of casualties that they probably wouldn't have had the delay not happened and the, you know, the the bad aim, I guess you could say it put them into some some trouble um if he hadn't taken the chance though eisenhower to it 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 was called operation overlord that was the official name of the d-day invasion i didn't know that so if he hadn't taken the chance to initiate it then the next opportunity would have been in a few weeks time but hindsight tells us that if he would have waited they would never have been able to launch the invasion um one of the worst june storms in the history of the english channel rolled in shortly after uh, the Normandy invasion, and it lasted for five days and completely destroyed all the artificial landing harbors that the Allies had constructed. Really? Um, yeah, so if Eisenhower hadn't taken that risk to go when he did, like, who knows Who knows what would happen. But as it was, like I said, the Allies did end up having sustain, like heavy 10,000 or more casualties due partially to the weather, throwing them off track. But it worked out, I suppose. If you could say anything about war, it works out. Yeah. Um. So... On to the kind of boring stuff about how weather actually works. (laughs) Let's get into it. Go for it. Rain. Mm -hmm. Everett, how much water do you think is in the atmosphere? Like, what percentage of the Earth's moisture is gaseous in our atmosphere?
1: I would say maybe even 10 or 15%. 0.001%.
0: 0.001%. Oh, that sounds pretty close. <laughs> the oceans hold
1: 97% okay.
0: of the Earth's moisture. Um, glaciers and the and fresh water kind of hold the rest.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but that 0.001%, if that all rained at the same time, we would get one inch of rain cover over the whole planet. That's crazy. That is a lot of water for 0.001 percent. So that really helped me kind of realize how much how much water we have. It's, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. So, terrain. All we really need is this water vapor to condense around something. Yep. Um, anything really? Dust, pollen, pollution, mm-hmm. ash. That's why there's lots of rain with volcanic eruptions.
1: Yeah, or or forest fires and stuff
0: lightning um yeah yes so this condensation masses into clouds you know the cloud gets heavier and heavier and it falls that's a pretty simple one so now onto something i vaguely remember learning about maybe in grade four i think it was in my grade four curriculum which is all these crazy cloud names mm. uh i'm not really gonna explain in depth because ra- like it's it's frankly kind of boring the number of cloud names and the the basics are interesting. Sure. Um, there are actually over a hundred types of clouds. Just to keep illustrating why I'm not going to explain okay. Dev.
1: We're not we're not doing just a, a list podcast. Oh
0: my God, can you imagine? If I sat here and just named a hundred cloud types: cumulonimbus, cumulostratus I could imagine it. I mean, you're autonimbus. helping me you with my
1: imagination right now.
0: How long would it take you to turn off the podcast, dear listener? If I started listening a hundred cloud types, um, so quick rundown. Cirrus clouds form way up high. Cumulus clouds are the clouds that you drew as a kid. The really light, fluffy. Um, white clouds, like the symbol of clouds, (laughs) rounded edges. Stratus means layer or layered. And so they hang low in the sky as kind of a flat grayish, um, you can't really see any 3D structure to it. Uh, Nimbus. Oh, I forgot. Stratus clouds just so you know are also the clouds that cause lightning and hail and tornadoes. Oh no, I lied. Cumulonimbus, <laughs> the clouds that cause lightning, hail, and tornadoes. See, good. It's tough. Cloud names are tough. Okay. Cumulonimbus. And the nimbus part of that name means rain. So if nimbus is stuck onto a cloud name, that, that, that cloud is going to produce precipitation. Excellent. Um, so you like, yeah, they just like take these different words that mean something and then jab them together in all the different combinations. Like stratus will mean layers and alto will mean higher up in the atmosphere. And, right. um, so... Mixed and match. <laughs> cirrus. Uh, cirrus means in Latin, curl of hair. So they're like thin, white, wispy strands that form way up high, as I said. Uh, because they appear... They're the highest clouds. They are over 20,000 feet, which is 6,096 meters. Um, they're made up of tiny ice crystals instead of water droplets.
1: This makes sense. Yeah.
0: Alto prefix in a cloud name is going to mean it's in the middle layer. Okay. Alto or altostratus. Um, fog is just a stratus cloud hanging really, really low in the sky. So fog is a stratus cloud.
1: Okay.
0: Um, it usually forms at night when a low layer of really moist air is cooled by the ground. So it'll create that kind of surface cloud, which we call radiation fog. <laughs> Which sounds super scary. If someone said the words radiation fog to me, I would not be happy. But I assume that just
1: means that, like radiating from the ground. Cool
0: air radiating from the surface. Yes. Yes. A breeze, um, a light breeze actually makes the fog thicker because it blows more warm wind towards the cool ground to condense into this cloud. Sure.
1: Keeps it pushed Um, down.
0: Yeah. So I'm sure you noticed on really foggy mornings how long the fog tends to stick around in the mornings. Like The sun doesn't just burn it off the second it comes up, which is because... Dew, um, firstly, well, kind of at the same time, dew starts to evaporate from the ground, joining the cloud. Yeah. So at the same time, the sun is evaporating some of the uh, moisture from the fog, it is also evaporating the dew into the cloud. Yeah. Anyways, so that's that dew replacing it is why it takes so long for the fog to clear up in the mornings. Cool. Um, so thunderstorms. We're going to thunderstorms. How? Remember nimbus clouds. Nimbus clouds are where rain comes from. How does the rain start to fall from the nimbus clouds? And how does it turn into a thunderstorm instead of just a rainstorm? Um, so the nimbus clouds are suspended on updrafts. And they grow larger and larger as they get pushed upwards. Um, then the rain and ice particles get larger and larger until they're too heavy to be held up by the updrafts. Um, but... In this type of cloud, in this type of position, in the atmosphere, the updrafts are blowing at around 110 kilometers an hour. So a lot of this cloud, part of it, still wants to go up while the heavy rain and ice wants to go down. Mm-hmm. That makes friction. It does. And turbulence. And that's why lightning happens. All this rubbing of particles going up and down, being forced past each other over and over at high speeds.
1: Generating, effectively, Friction, clouds of static static electricity, yeah. exactly.
0: Um, so eventually, the winds and the falling ice and the rain cool the air below the cloud enough to stop those intense updrafts. And the precipitation starts to fall as the cloud falls. Um, about 1 in 80 thunderstorms turn into what's called a supercell. Which is what most often produces a tornado, and tornadoes are created by wind shear. Okay, so I obviously didn't know what that was. So wind shear is like think about um, just a very simple uh, two two layers, like an upper layer and a lower layer, and of wind. And okay. let's say the upper layer of wind is blowing to the right. Okay. We could use east and west, like a fancy we could, people, but, but to the right. Fine. And the lower wind is blowing to the left. And they're both blowing at different speeds even. Okay. So what they're gonna do is tilt the cloud, right? The top's gonna want to go one way and the bottom's gonna want to go another way. Mm-hmm. Um and that and that's basically how we get this rotating updraft within the cloud. Okay. And that can go as fast as two hundred and forty kilometers an hour in there. Um so then we produce hail from thunderstorms. We, we all know this, especially the live in here. Yeah. Um, the updrafts in the thunder clouds and especially in the thunderstorm are what makes hail. Um, because the longer the precipitation can stay up there, the more, um, moisture can condense onto that scaffold and make bigger and at, bigger.
1: At colder and colder temperatures as it goes up.
0: Uh, yes. So the stronger updrafts make bigger hail. Um, It can get up to grapefruit size, obviously. Most of it's like five centimeters in diameter is the most common size of hail. The largest diameter hail fell in Vivian, South Dakota in 2010, and it was over 20 centimeters in diameter. The heaviest hailstone was in Bangladesh in 1986, 1.02 kilograms. So (sighs) a bag of sugar, a bag of sugar from the grocery store is about one kilogram. Um, and hail falls at over 190 kilometers an hour. So, 190 kilometer an hour bag of sugar
1: That's is going to do,
0: well, definitely deadly, but like a lot of damage. Crops, animals, buildings, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, because of the cycle of hail, the way the hailstone starts to fall and gets pushed up by an updraft, adds more layers, falls, gets pushed up again. It actually means that if you could cut a hailstone in half before it started melting, you'd be actually able to see the layers of ice throughout the okay. different events, That's which cool. I think would be really cool. Yeah. Um, okay. But why uh, snow, snow and hail, they're both frozen precipitation. What's up with snow, right? Why is it not hail? Why is hail not snow? Uh, what are the different differences between frozen precipitation? Right. So um, water, water is H2O. It It is. Two H's and one O.
1: That's another way of saying H2O.
0: Because of the way the H's hydrogen bond with the O's
1: Uh
0: of other water molecules. Yeah. (laughs) You're so condescending with your chemistry knowledge. Yeah, Um, very cool. Snowflakes, it is so cool. Snowflakes are made of hexagons because as we all know, hexagons are...
1: The bestagons?
0: I made Everett watch that video the other day. Just go on YouTube. You can watch Hexagons Are the best Bestegons. I find it enjoyable. Um, on the molecular level, snowflakes are made of hexagons. That is why snowflakes always have six points. Mm-hmm. Um, in a little bit, I'll kind of describe the various conditions that make the different types of frozen precipitation. Um, but I want to talk about blizzards first, because blizzards are cool. We don't really get them here, honestly. At least not snowfall blizzards. Wind, that's another... It's sure. another thing. But we just don't get that sustained storm probably because of the lack of humidity in our atmosphere. Um, you're more likely to get these types of storms out east by the Great Lakes and, you know, seaboards and all that stuff. Um, for a storm to be officially declared a blizzard, the temperature needs to be below freezing and wind speeds need to be over 56 kilometers an hour. Visibility needs to be less than 0.4 kilometers and that needs to last for three hours. Okay. But there's no requirement for snow. It doesn't need to snow. Like I said, a blizzard could happen um, just from blowing snow.
1: Sure. As it's long as all the conditions on the
0: are met. Yes. That's called a ground blizzard, even though okay. I don't think we really need to discriminate if it's that bad <laughs> visibility-wise. Okay. Way back in 1888, the northeastern United States had one of the worst blizzards in history. Uh, they call it the Great Blizzard of 1888, or more awesomely, the Great White Hurricane. Buried half the East Coast, basically everything north of North Carolina, in about 50 inches of snow. And then because of the wind, there were snow drifts measuring 15 meters tall, just over 15 meters tall. Um, telephone, <laughs> telegram wires were wiped out across the whole eastern seaboard, so they are cut off completely from the world at this time. Uh, Washington, New York, Philly, Boston lost all their power, all their services, all their transit, just everything. More than 100 sailors were lost at sea, 200 ships ran ground fires out of control because all the water was frozen in all the pipes in the hydrants, so that caused more than $25 million in 1888 U.S. dollars wow. of damage. Um, more than 400 civilians died. So yeah, it's the worst blizzard in U.S. history. Uh, and just for some fun, most snow measured in a 24-hour period. Worldwide, the record is 90.6 inches, so that is 230.12 centimeters, Mount Ibuki, Japan, Valentine's Day,
1: 1927.
0: Wow. That's in, a lot. And in the U.S., Silver Lake, Colorado, in 1921, um, April 14th to 15th, 75.8 inches. So that's 192.53 centimeters in a single day. But that's way up at an elevation of uh, 10,000 feet in the Rockies. Okay. So... Shockingly, you're going to get all these records up in the mountains, right? Mount Abuku, Rockies, Canada. um, The deepest one-day snowfall in Canada was way less than the States, actually. 57 inches, about 145 centimeters, at Totsa Lake, which is in the Coast Mountains, um, kind of in northern BC. And just so you know, 145 centimeters is more than Calgary gets annually, on average.
1: Uh, Yeah, I'd believe that. But we don't get a lot of snow here.
0: I mean, you say that, but lately. (laughs) So that day was February 11th, 1999. Not that long ago. Yeah, that's recent. Um, So it left record-setting snowfall of 113 centimeters in Terrace, BC as well. The most snow from a single storm. Um, That would be the old Mount Shasta Ski Bowl in Northern California. I don't know where that is, but most snow from a single snow system... 189 inches. That's 480 centimeters of snow between oh, that's five meters eh? between February 13th to February 19th, 1959. Yeah, wow. five meters of snow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, Canada doesn't really have a record for one storm. Everything. Every time you try to look up something like this, they only talk about the Southern Alberta blizzards of 1967. There were two storms back to back. Okay, but you know everything says it didn't feel like anything ended but it was a separate storm system just so you know technically um so in late 67 or april of 67 um alberta received a record breaking 175 centimeters of snow in less than two weeks um so farmers obviously had some issues (laughs) the army came to help clear snow um albertans also got a two-week tax extension that year (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i don't know just Good for them. i don't know if you really anyone really cares but just so you know um the coldest ever recorded temperature in canada indeed in all of north america continental north america snag yukon minus 62.8 celsius Ooh. which is minus 81 fahrenheit if anyone knows it's just balmy and every hottest temperature ever recorded in canada is
1: 62.
0: No, it was from this summer, remember? Lytton, B.C. Set the record and then burnt down the next week. Lytton, B.C., 49.6 degrees Celsius.
1: I did forget about that.
0: (laughs) It's a really sad story. Yeah,
1: that was a sad story, yeah. Do
0: you have a guess? I think you probably have a guess. Hottest temperature ever in the world.
1: Well, I mean, I can always have guesses.
0: I think you probably have an educated guess due to your upbringing.
1: Uh... I'm going to see it's like a good hint? Death Valley a good hint. in California. Sure is. At
0: 70.12.
1: Um, I don't know what's reasonable in this case.
0: Uh, the aptly named Furnace Creek in Death Valley, California. 134 degrees Fahrenheit in 1913. Oh, which so is, that's way too high then. Yeah, 56.67 okay. Celsius. But for reference... You cook a medium rare steak between one hundred and thirty and one hundred and thirty five degrees Fahrenheit to internal temperature. So we're cooking a, we're we're talking a medium rare steak temperature here. Okay. Um, coldest in the world. Again, I think you'll probably be able to guess where in the world they recorded the coldest ever temperature.
1: Mm, like Siberia. Antarctica. 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 Vostok,
0: Antarctica. Minus eighty nine point two degrees Celsius.
1: That's very low.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So just like super quick before we finish off um, the end of this, do you want to just like give everyone a quick overview of what temperature is? What are we measuring?
1: Yeah. um, I think
0: that's going to be helpful.
1: Yeah. So temperature is the measurement of, I mean, technically it's the kinetic energy of the molecules. Um, Which is. So like movement. Best described if you have like a gas, like let's just pretend you have a gas and it's in a container. If the gas is moving around slowly in the container, that's a low temperature. But
0: you're talking about specifically the molecules that make up the gas.
1: Correct. The molecules... Just so they can
0: contextualize this. There's a little oxygen conti- molecule yeah. in air bouncing, bouncing around.
1: around. The faster it's moving, the higher the temperature.
0: Right. So when we're inputting energy into a system, those little molecules are absorbing the energy and start to move faster, and that is temperature. Correct. Um, so let's get back to why is some frozen precipitation hail and some is snow and some is sleet. Oh, and don't forget freezing rain. How are these things all different and why? Um, snow occurs when the atmosphere is cold all the way from the clouds down to the surface. Okay. So the precipitation falls through freezing or sub freezing air for the entire journey to the ground. So it makes the nice crystal structure and falls and stays that way. Okay. Um, Sleet and freezing rain form because of a warm air sandwich in the atmosphere. So precipitation starts as snow in the cold layer. It melts into rain as it falls through the warm layer of our warm layer sandwich, warm air sandwich, and refreezes in the bottom bread, the cold bread, um, into sleet or freezing rain. For sleet to occur, the warm air layer in the middle is thin a thicker wedge of cold air beneath that warm air refreezes that partially melted snow into an ice pellet. Okay. But if there's that, like, a longer warm air layer, it melts all the way into rain. Yeah. And then refreezes just as it hits the ground, freezing rain. Okay. So the size of our filling on our warm air sandwich tells you if you're going to get sleet or freezing rain. Very cool. Um, hail is just those crazy updrafts yeah. over and over. So there's a cycle of melting and f- freezing and adding and growing. Um, sleet forms in winter storms. Hail is a, as we are saying, warm season type yeah. of precipitation, and it forms in spring and summer or fall thunderstorms. Speaking of the seasons, though, let's just quickly delve into those next because it's always cool, even if you've heard this before. Um, the reason we have seasons is the tilt of the Earth's axis.
1: Oh, that's what we're getting at. Yes, that one.
0: 23.5 degrees is the angle of our axis at the moment to the sun. Um, whichever hemisphere is tilted towards the sun gets more sunlight, warmer temperatures. Temperatures at yeah. the equator obviously hardly vary because they're yep. not really moving. Or moderate. They're on that the, the middle there. Um, they're constantly the same distance from the sun. Um, when the angle of the sun's rays is lower, so the sun is closer down to the horizon, the solar energy has to go through a thicker layer of atmosphere before it gets to the surface so that is why when the sun is at that lower angle even if we're getting sunlight it's not as warm it's not as we don't and why we don't make vitamin d by the way everybody from october to april when you live at this latitude because the sun's angle is not high enough for us to get the energy that we need Between October and April, take some vitamin D or just always. Um, does that, does that make sense? Am I explaining that in a, like a?
1: Yeah, just by geometry, basically.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So these seasonal changes are aided and abetted by the oceans. And I know that's a term that particularly pertains to crime, but I I just like, I like 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 the accomplice. I don't know. I like it. Since water is able to absorb a lot of heat, it makes a very excellent coolant. Our oceans are giant reservoirs of coolant. They prevent abrupt season changes. So that also explains why the hottest and coldest days of the year don't occur on the longest or shortest days, the solstices. Um so or, you know, longest and shortest amount of sunlight is a better way to put that. Um so without other inputs of energy, you would assume that the day with the least amount of sunlight would be the coldest. Cold. Yeah you know, at least the, the weather around that day, right? Obviously, there's not exact things happening. Likewise, you'd assume the day with the most solar energy received, which is kind of what we're talking about with the most sunlight hours, yeah. would be the warmest. Um But winter instead is able to come in gradually. The oceans, so the oceans are releasing all the heat that they stored up into the atmosphere as they're getting less input from the sun. They start releasing that heat. Um Summer takes longer to come in. Because once that warm, um, once the energy from the sun starts, the oceans take the time to kind of take that energy and absorb it into the water before, before all of the solar radiation can be used to warm the air. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I'm making sense here, but this is why we get our, like, our warmest and coldest weather is about six weeks after the solstices. is. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, good. This property of the ocean also explains why there's so many hurricanes at this time of the year. Um, apparently around the fall equinox, uh, September 21st or 22nd, depending, um, the oceans are their warmest of the year, which is why this is hurricane season. I've never really known that. I don't live somewhere where we get hurricanes. So I guess that's probably the, yeah. Um, and by the way, I just thought I'd throw in a quick equinox just means equal night. So on the equinoxes, we have exactly, almost exactly 12 hours of sun and 12 hours of dark. Right. Um, So just to conclude, there's been a lot in the news about hurricanes, especially lately. And I thought, let's learn more about hurricanes. Um, They're vitally important to the global climate, turns out. We don't want to stop hurricanes. We don't want to nuke a hurricane.
1: Nuke a hurricane. This sounds American to me
0: did you somehow manage to miss this yes oh goodness this is hilarious i'm so glad okay i'm not glad you didn't get my reference because i thought it was funny but donald trump well, uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Do I, uh, you probably I don't need to go more? on it's okay legitimately <laughs> asked his as advisors if they could nuke the hurricane that was coming for uh Puerto Rico, or whatever that was back when he was. No, that was coming for the continental United States. Yeah, I'm
1: airport. sure that would help a lot.
0: I don't remember, but he asked about nuking the hurricanes. You, you, you don't want to nuke them. First of all, that would, you just have caused a hurricane nuclear with nuclear out. radiation. Uh, secondly, thirdly, fourthly, and fifthly, this is a terrible idea, and we need hurricanes. Okay. Um, They are giant heat engines that pick up warmth from the oceans in warmer latitudes and carry that to colder climates. They're one of the biggest warmth distributors in our global weather patterns. Cool. Um, So how do they form? You need things like warm ocean water, high humidity, and light winds... Uh, The tropical Atlantic and the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico all kind of create the proper circumstances between June to November, like I was saying. Mm -hmm. But right around the equinox is that prime hurricane uh, territory. Hurricanes need to spin also. Um, This spin is provided by the Coriolis effect, which if you don't know, is just a really fancy term for the fact that the Earth spins so the things on it spin too? That's that's about all I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say about that. Sure. If the Earth spins, therefore things on the Earth are also spinning. Uh, hurricanes need to travel about five degrees north of the equator before they can start to spin. Because the Coriolis effect, like it has zero force at the equator. Okay. Since
1: I, I never hmm, thought about that, but that makes sense.
0: The Coriolis effect is based on the fact that everything needs to go around at the same speed, but the Earth is... Bigger around the equator than it is at the poles, yeah. so it has to spin faster up there. To no slower, it's slower, slower. I don't know if I'm confusing everyone or not. Well, you're not confusing
1: um, me, so it's okay. I'm right here.
0: <laughs> all you need to know is there's is zero Coriolis effect at the equator, zero force from the Coriolis effect. Let's say, yeah. Um, so two-thirds of hurricanes then they form between ten and twenty degrees north, like the latitude, ten and twenty degrees north. Um, along what's called the Intertropical Convergence Zone. but that sounded cool. I-T-C-Z. Which is where northeasterly winds meet southeasterly trade winds. And these air masses collide, which pushes the warmer winds and humid tropical air up. Okay. Just kind of like subduction and plates and tectonic plates or something. Pushes it up.
1: Do you mean up or north? You're talking up. Up.
0: Okay. Into the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. As it moves up, it starts to condense and rain. These just turn into thunderstorms, big thunderstorms, big groups, sure. big groups of big thunderstorms. You know how they're saying that the hurricane that just hit down Louisiana, um, they had no time to prepare for it because three, up to three days before it hit, it was just a group of thunderstorms. Right. So this is what happens. First, you get these groups of thunderstorms. What makes these groups of thunderstorms into hurricanes? Well, those very specific conditions that I that I talked about. So the water has to be at least 80 degrees Fahrenheit all the way down to 150 feet in depth. So obviously the traffic's not here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the atmosphere above the storm has to be much cooler than the surface, okay. which allows the thunderclouds clouds to bloom and blossom into really big storms. Um, the mid-level of the atmosphere has to be saturated with water vapor, and the storm has to be at least 500 miles from the equator to start spinning properly. So, if all these things are met in a group of thunderstorms, um, they're going to start to, you know, really kind of form a big thunderstorm. And uh, unlike tornadoes, which depends on that wind shear, the wind's blowing in different directions, wind shear destroys hurricanes.
1: Oh, okay. They
0: um, So, I don't really understand how they start spinning because to me it was just uh, a lot of words. Converging winds spin towards the center. The winds are drawn into the core and rise up, pressurizing the top of the storm. Yeah. And air escapes through the top. This lowers the pressure further down in the storm, sucks in more and more air.
1: Right.
0: More outflow at the top lets more hot air in the bottom, which just speeds up. That's what starts spinning and speeds up the spinning um, builds and it grows, and then the wind speed d- 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 determines the type of storm. A tropical depression is anything under 39 miles per hour. Then you get a tropical storm, then you call it a cyclone, and then at 73 miles an hour, it's a hurricane. And then you go category one, two, three, and up.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and then just an interesting side fact here, the Atlantic Basin area is assigned six lists of names for hurricanes, one list per year. And then every six years, they just reuse the lists over and over. Okay. And then if they have an especially destructive storm like Katrina, then they retire that name. Hang its jersey in the rafters. You can't use it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Fun. yeah, <laughs> I just thought I would, I would look into hurricanes since it's been some big news lately. I think there's a few about to hit Atlantic Canada. So, uh, I, I wish everyone safety in that storm. Um, I don't know, again, what next week's episode, or two weeks, what next episode will be about.
1: It'll be a surprise.
0: I don't think it's going to be, well, I guess it'll be a surprise, but i have it narrowed down.
1: Okay.
0: Have it narrowed down to either carnivorous plants or animal navigation. So it'll be a surprise between those two. It'll be a surprise between two things. Or, you
1: know, C, neither.
0: That's true. What if I just show up in two weeks and it's just some completely different topic? Will you be excited? Who knows? Yeah, we'll find out then. We'll have to wait and see. And on that note, I'm going to say thank you so much for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: And I hope you learned something new.